was the turn of one of the church elders to visit one of the church members. So he rang the doorbell and was waiting to be received by the, the person he went to see, but nobody came to the door. So he kept on ringing the doorbell, and he was sure there was somebody at home. He could hear some noises. So he kept ringing the doorbell, but there was just no answer. So he thought as a kind of final departing act, he would put his business card through the letterbox just to make sure they knew he'd been. And he thought he'd be really clever, so he took his business card, and on the back of the card he wrote, the words of Revelation 3, verse 20. And it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And then he stuck it through the letterbox. Two days later, the same elder received the same uh, business card back with a brief note attached to it, which simply said uh, the, the words of Genesis 3:10 on it. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> now, when you come into the entrance of this building, you'll see three amazing photographs, timeless they are, uh, of the three elders of this church, of Paul, Keith, and myself. Give us a wave just in case people don't know who Paul, Keith, and I are, and, and myself. Oh, that's us. We're the, we're the three handsome guys. And, and I'm sure whenever you walk in, you are just staggered by the phenomenal good looks. Um, Victoria and Anastasia are not, 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 not agreeing with that. Just by, staggered by the amazing good looks of the three elders and, and probably wondered how on earth did you have the good fortune to be blessed with such three amazing guys that just look so great. And uh, our photographs haven't aged. Our, our pictures 10 years ago look pretty much the same as they do today. It's amazing. Now, apart from wondering how you have such phenomenally good looking and trim and fit elders, <laughs> you, you might actually wonder on a more serious note what we actually do, and that's probably a good question. What do the elders actually do why do we have church elders? Uh, what do the elders do when they get together? And so on. We're going to look at that subject today, and hopefully by the end of the service this morning, all of that will become clear. Last week we started a new Bible series, of, uh, a, a teaching series, looking at the book of Titus in the New Testament, which Joel kicked off for us. And Titus was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the uh, main church leaders in the New Testament era in the first century, and he wrote it to one of his co-workers, a guy called Titus. So Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and as Joel explained for us last week, Titus was there in Crete, and he was helping the churches that Paul's missionary team had, had started there in Crete. And Paul and his team have been traveling across Europe. He has several different missionary journeys where he goes out across Europe with a team of people, and they are teaching others about Jesus, they are presenting the good news about Jesus, what we call the gospel message, or as Paul calls it in Titus, the trustworthy message, and then people, as they heard that message and responded to that message that Jesus has come from heaven, has laid down his life for our sins, that we can have uh, eternal life, we can be forgiven, we can have a relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us there on the cross. Those people, as they responded, became Christians, became followers of Jesus. Paul and his team then gathered those people into groups. Uh, into what we would call local churches. Churches, a little bit like this one, I guess. The word church simply means God's gathered people. Literally means gathering of people or an assembly of people. God's gathered people. And it's a group, in, in the Bible context, it's a group of people who've trusted in Jesus, who gathered together to form a local church family. But it also refer, refers to all those right across the world at any time and, and, and throughout history who've put their faith and trust in Jesus. So we have the our worldwide church, the worldwide family of God who've trusted in Jesus, but also we have lots of local churches. Uh, this one here at Regent, we've got 
the one that Dave and Sarah are going to be uh, helping to lead down in London. And these are all just small gatherings, local gatherings of God's people gathered together, local churches. Church isn't a building. We say, often say, don't we, we're going to church, and we talk about church as a building. That's not really what the, the, the Bible means. The Bible is talking about the people who gather together. They might do that in a building, but the church are the people that gather together. It's all those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, Jesus said these words, I will build my church, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, despite all that Satan, and, and Hades is really just another way of talking about Satan in, in, in this kind of context, it, despite all that Satan will try and do to attack the church, the church worldwide and local churches like this one, Jesus will keep on building his church. Jesus will win. Jesus promises to build his church. It is his church. He will build it because it belongs to him. And he laid down his life for his church. It belongs to him. It's his purchase. It's his possession. So the church and all those that belong to the church, whether worldwide or to each individual local churches, they, they all belong to Jesus. It is his. We are his. This church is his. And since the church began 2,000 years ago, Jesus has been steadily building his church. It has been growing continuously, year on year and throughout history, until more and more people put their faith and trust in him. Jesus is the head of the church, and it's, it's his church. That's why we've got up there on the wall, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of effectively saying that this church doesn't belong to anybody here. It belongs to Jesus. It is his church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. He is the head of this church. He's the head of this church that gathers here in this room, in this building. Jesus is in charge, not Paul, Keith, or I, or whoever the elders happen to be at any particular time. It is Jesus that is the head of the church. The, the church belongs to him because he laid down his life for it. The Bible refers to Jesus in, in many different ways and uses lots of different pictures, but one of the pictures, one of the ways in which it refers to Jesus as, is as the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd of the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and we're like a flock of sheep that belong to him, that he leads and guides and cares for and feeds. So the way that Jesus has established and set up the church, his church, is then for each local church to have a, a, a group of male, a plural group of male, kind of what we might call under-shepherds or junior shepherds that then look after each gathering on Jesus' behalf or for him. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. But then each local congregation, churches like this, should then have a group of men who act like shepherds do, leading, guiding, feeding, caring, correcting, and driving and leading the sheep forwards and through life. And these men are meant to care for and lead and guide and feed that flock of sheep. And in the Bible, there's a whole variety of names or titles that are given to this group of men. There's four names used in the New Testament, although one of them is translated in some English versions in two different words. So in our English Bibles, in most translations, we effectively have five names. If you're using an ESV, there's only four. But in, in, in most translations, there are five names that are used that are translated. But they all actually refer to the same position. They all refer to the same office in the church. They all refer to the same uh, role. And the reason why there's different titles used is to reflect or to kind of yeah, reflect on the different aspects of that role, the different kind of things that that, that person does, the different uh, aspects of the role that they have. Each title reflects a different aspect of that. If you look on your outline, 
you'll see that there are five titles used in the Bible, as we said, in, or in the English Bible. And then I've put next to that the Greek word that it's translated from. If you want to get into that, you can do that and you can look at that. And there's a brief definition next to it. But there are five in English Bibles, and this is these. So the first one is elder. The second one is overseer. The third one is shepherd. The fourth one is pastor. And the fifth one is leaders. And leaders is just simply a kind of catch-all phrase which summarizes all the other terms. And all these titles are referring to the same position. They just refer to different aspects of that same role. So in some verses, depending on the context and what the, the issue is, you'll see the word elder. In some verses, you'll see the word overseer. In some verses, you'll see the word shepherd. Uh, in some verses, in some translations, you'll see the word pastor. And in some verses, you'll see the word leaders. But they're all referring to the same office or, or same role or job, if you like, in a local church. Here at Regent, we use the title elder. For ju- purely for simplicity's sake, that's the, u- that's the title that we use. But we could just as easily, just as biblically use the word pastor or shepherd or leader or overseer because they all refer to the same office they all refer to the same position now i do just want to say a little bit about the term pastor because it can cause some confusion the word pastor is is a latin word and it's the latin word for shepherd okay so pastor just means shepherd but for some reason and in lots of english translations the latin word pastor still gets used instead of the simpler more accurate word or more understood word shepherd and because the Latin word still gets used and often gets used in church circles, it kind of makes the role sound as if it's a kind of superior or separate or sort of unique role. And as a result of that, it can cause all sorts of confusion uh, amongst people about what church leadership should look like. So in an English Bible, where you see the word pastor, it just means shepherd. That's what pastor means, okay? It, it, it isn't referring to somebody that is somehow uh, superior or different or better than the the other elders, it's, it's, it's just referring to a shepherd. That's, that's what it means. However, the term pastor has kind of gained currency, if you like, beyond uh, the title or the way it's used in the Bible. And it's often used to describe, I guess, the kind of role that I have as a full-time uh, lead elder, sort of teaching elder here. Um, and it's, it's often used to describe someone who has a, maybe a similar role to the kind of role I have. And, and that's fine. As long as we understand that in the Bible and in this church, all the elders biblically are equal and all the elders are pastors because pastor just means shepherd, okay? However, we may, in, in, in different churches, and, we, and, 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 that's, and that's fine, give uh, one of the elders a title, like pastor or minister, which kind of denotes the role that they have, that they have a, perhaps a different role to the others because they're working full time as I do, okay? So these elders, these overseers, these shepherds, pastors, are always in the New Testament a group of plural group of male equal leaders. You never have just one leader. That's not the kind of biblical model. Sometimes it has to happen, but the, the biblical blueprint is always to have a group of male equal leaders. And one or more of that team of elders might have a specific role in the way that I do. Uh, but even though that's the case here at Region, I'm not superior to the other elders. I'm not uh, better than or, or different to them. I just have a different particular role amongst the eldership. Uh, and, of course, I'm paid a salary to be able to give my full time to, to, to devote to that. Um, and that will happen in lots of other churches, too. Paul deals with the whole concept of salarying elders and, and, and other church workers, too, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. And, and you can look at that in your own time if you want to. So in a local church, one of the elders might have the title pastor or lead elder or full-time elder or minister or something like that. And that's fine as long as we remember 
that they're not above the elders or the other elders or, or superior to them, or at least they shouldn't be. That's not what the Bible teaches. So we've got a group of male leaders, male elders, shepherds, pastors, uh, whatever you want to call them. The biblical uh, model is there for us. And as I said earlier, last week we started a new Bible teaching series looking at the book of Titus. And today we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And in this section, Paul instructs Titus to make sure that there are elders, that Titus appoints elders in every single town where a church had started. Then he gives Titus a whole list of qualifications for what those elders uh, should be doing, or really for who can be those elders, because their role is going to be really important. So Paul's point is that, look, you need to make sure that the right people are appointed to this role because it's a really key and a really important role. So he lists a whole variety of qualifications and some of the things that are expected from them. So let's look at Titus. We've been, uh, we've just started this series. Joel started it off for us last week, Titus chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 5 to 9. But I'm going to start with verse 1 just for the context, just to give us a bit of setting. I've left my glasses in my bag, so that's good. So here we go. We'll see how we get on with this. My arm isn't quite long enough. Okay, so if you've got a Bible handy and you want to read, uh, uh, you can follow it along or you can just listen uh, as I read, whatever you're comfortable with. So Paul says this to Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage, he can encourage others by sound doctrine, and refute those who oppose it. Now, I quoted earlier the words of Jesus when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Jesus has been building his church for the last 2,000 years. But the gates of Hades, which is just basically another way, really, of, of referring to Satan, while Satan will not overcome the church of Jesus, he will nevertheless do his best to attack churches, to sow all kinds of disunity and just basically disrupt churches at every step. He will do whatever he can to do that. And one of the ways that Satan has done that and continues to do that is by introducing false teaching. But introducing false teaching into local churches. And if you study church history, what you'll find is that over the uh, 2,000 years, and, and nothing is new because this just goes around all the time, Satan has cleverly introduced all kinds of lies, all kinds of deceptions and false teachings into the church. And he continues to do that today. Sometimes they, the deceptions are only just slightly deceiving, just kind of slightly wider the mark, but they still cause absolute havoc over time. Sometimes they are really obvious. Sadly, sometimes it comes from people who are already inside the church, who can profess to be Christians but aren't. But quite often it's from people who actually are Christians but have somehow been deceived 
by Satan and begin to teach things that are unbiblical, not just unbiblical, but are actually anti the trustworthy message, this, this package of information, if you like, that we call the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And they end up being deceived by Satan and, and, and start teaching stuff that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. And Paul mentions that this kind of thing will happen when he writes his letter, his first letter to Timothy, who was another one of his co-workers. This is what he says in, in Timothy. Uh, he says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Things taught by demons. Deceit, people are deceived, begin to teach. They have a, a kind of pulpit or an influence in the church, and they begin to teach things that are not biblical. Now, next week, we're going to see ways in which, uh, specifically, that was happening there in Crete. And Joel's going to be looking at that for us. And, and we'll see the fact that uh, there was some real havoc being caused in the local churches in Crete because of things that were false, things that were wrong, that were being in the churches there. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to firstly have a team of elders in every church, and secondly, why it's so important that they're qualified and that they're suitable for the task. Because one of the key roles of a team of elders is to then ensure that the truth of the Bible is being taught, and then to protect that church from false and from wrong teaching. That's one of the key roles. Not the only thing at all, but it is one of the key roles. And as Paul lists some of the qualifications for the elders, Titus was to appoint, he then says this about each of those elders in verse 9. He says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, that's that package of truth that we call the gospel, that who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So a major task and a role for a church elder, not the only one by any means, but the major task and role of a church elder and the team of elders is to encourage the church family with biblical teaching, sound teaching, accurate teaching of God's word, but also then to defend the right teaching from false teaching and to be able to spot that and be on the guard for it uh, and against it and so on, to refute those who oppose the correct teaching of the Bible because one of Satan's main attacks has always been and continues to be to sow lies, to sow deceit into local churches. And so it's so important that church elders, it's, it's important that we all are aware and have our radar up against wrong teaching. But particularly and specifically, the elders are charged with that task of protecting and guarding and teaching. Now, if we look at all the other passages in the New Testament that deal with the role of church elders, what we find is that there are five main tasks that elders have to carry out. And they're all summed up in verse 7 where Paul says this, an overseer manages God's housework, uh, household or, or, or does God's work. The phrase God's household is one of the ways that the New Testament refers to the local church. It, it, it's, it's one of the ways in which the local church family is described as being God's household. If you, go, if you went back to Roman and Greek culture in the first century AD, a well-off man would employ somebody he would call an overseer, and the overseer would, o the overseer would, oversee, would look after the uh, wealthy man's household. And he would manage his household affairs and his money and raise a family and look after the home and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that's where the word and title of overseer comes from in the Bible. Elders are overseers. They're meant to oversee God's household, God's family, and make sure it runs and functions properly and so on. So elders are meant to provide oversight or management and direction for their church. And if you look at the other passage, passages in the New Testament, then you can see the ways in which elders are meant to do that. First, as we've just looked at, is to provide Bible teaching and to defend and correct 
Bible to make sure that what's being taught is accurate and true. That's a major part of the task of an elder, both from the front up here, but also behind the scenes, one-on-one with people uh, in smaller groups or in on kind of one-on-one sort of situations. Here at Regent, as elders, the three of us would provide about 50%, perhaps a little bit more, of the total teaching from the front. Uh, and then any other teaching that takes place only takes place with the approval and the authority and the backing of the elders. So elders also then provide spiritual protection to the local church. They have to protect the church from attacks on the church itself or uh, on individual members of the church from outside of the church, but sadly sometimes even from within the church. It's one of the things that Paul says in Acts as he's talking to the elders in Ephesus, there's going to be savage wolves come into your church and and cause real problems. Not physical savage wolves, but people who will act just like a savage wolf will do. And that's part of the role of elders is to spiritually protect the local church. Then elders provide pastoral care. Elders are meant to act as shepherds, caring for those in their church, leading them, guiding them, directing them, helping them through life. And the last key role is that elders carry out discipline in the local church. Now, this is the probably least popular one. That woke everybody up, didn't it? The least popular one, both for the elders to have to do, but also for the church family. The local church is a family. It's a household. It's a family, and, and families need structure. They need discipline. They need authority or someone to be an authority. Otherwise, all sorts of problems can occur. And sometimes the elders will have to take people aside and, and, and have a little word and sometimes correct people and rebuke people when their behavior is unacceptable, if, if they're behaving in a way that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Some cases, all that will be required is a kind of a gentle chat, a little kind of rebuke. Uh, sometimes it will take a bit more than that. Sometimes it will involve a stronger rebuke, a stronger discussion. Sometimes it might even mean the elders removing a church member from a, from a ministry and stepping them down from something that they were involved in because perhaps their uh, behavior not being appropriate or whatever. In the most extreme cases, it can mean the elders removing a person from church membership. It's an aspect of eldership that's really hard, and it's not at all pleasant, especially for the elders, but it is nevertheless absolutely necessary and thoroughly biblical and part of what church leadership is about. Lots of us like the idea of church elders, but none of us like the idea of submitting to discipline, do we? But that is very much a part of the New Testament pattern for a local church. So all of this means that the qualifications for the men who are going to do this, and by the way, I keep referring to them being men. I haven't got time to kind of go into what the Bible teaches about the role of male and female in the Bible. If you want to come and talk to me about that afterwards, I'd be delighted to do so. But what we believe here in this church is that the Bible clearly teaches that there is a difference between the role of men and women and that leadership, authority, uh, eldership is, is a role that males uh, are uh, only meant to carry out. But if you want to come and chat with me about that afterwards, I'd be delighted to do so. So these are the kind of qualifications that Paul lists for elders because they are really, really important. This is a really difficult role. It's a really important role. So it's important that the right people are doing this job. It's important that that the men who are appointed to this role meet all the biblical requirements. If they don't, then all sorts of problems will happen. And often in churches where there are problems, it's because the wrong people have been appointed to that role. The passage that we're looking at today contains one of the lists of the qualifications that are required. And there's, there's two other passages that uh, where we find the uh, l- uh, list of specific qualifications for elders listed. And then in 1 Timothy 3, 
and 1 Peter 5. And I've listed all those qualifications on your outline. So if you want to just pick your outline up, I've left mine, so I'm just going to pinch forward. Thanks, Paul. That's fantastic. My wonderful helper. Um, and uh, I'm just going to run down them really, really quickly. I've, I've underlined the ones that are in Titus, just to kind of make you stand out. Uh, but some of these are doubled up in other passages. Some of them are only found in one section or another. And I just want to kind of go through them all in a minute. But Paul, I mean, Paul lists all these different qualifications and the different things that elders need to have. And if we look at them, you can group them really into four areas. Firstly, personal character. Personal character. Secondly, the home life of that elder. Thirdly, their Bible teaching ability. And then fourthly, their experience in life. So let's just look at this list really, really quickly. We're not going to go through them in depth. I just want to maybe flag up one or two that are not quite as clear. Most of them are really self-explanatory and obvious. But again, if you do want to come and chat with me, or better still, better still, talk to Paul and keep about them afterwards, then we'd be delighted to do that. So firstly, Paul says you have to be above reproach or, or, or without any blame. There's no accusations that can be leveled against an elder for, for wrong behavior and so on. We have to be... A husband of one wife, it says literally. In other words, faithful, a one-woman man, a, a man who is faithful to his wife. To be temperate, to be moderate, not to be extreme in their behavior. To be self-controlled, to be disciplined, to be respectable and upright, to have a good reputation with people. Not to get drunk. The Bible doesn't forbid drinking alcohol, but certainly drunkenness is wrong. And elders especially are not to be drunk. Not to be violent, but to be gentle and and probably, obviously, physical violence isn't something anyone's going to be expecting, but it is still possible to be violent, isn't it, with our uh, tongue, with the words we use. Not to be quick-tempered. Not to be always looking for an argument, always looking to cause a, an argument. Those are things that elders shouldn't have, shouldn't be that kind of person. Not to be overbearing, kind of domineering and asserting your own will. Not to be a lover of money. As, as elders, we, we have access to the money and the finances in a way that other people don't. And as uh, some of the elders may be paid, as, as I am, so it's important that finances and money are not one of their motivators. And it's important that they handle those finances with utmost with, um, honesty and integrity. Not to be dishonest, and obviously that just uh, reinforces that. To be eager to serve. There's no point in us being elders unless we are actually eager to do this and to get on with this. We're to be concerned for the good of other uh, Christians, to love what is good, to be holy, to live kind of holy lives in pursuing holiness, to be a good example to other Christians, and to have a good reputation with non-Christians outside of the church. And then in our home life, to be hospitable. In other words, to be opening our home up, to be a place where others enjoy coming and are blessed as they come into our homes. To manage our own family well, and a man whose children who believe or are faithful just a few comments on that. Obviously, a child is someone who is a child and not an adult. So uh, if an elder raises a child and then uh, once they're an adult, they then turn their back on Jesus, that's obviously a very different situation. That's out of the elder's control. Paul also doesn't mean saving faith here. Uh, an elder, uh, no parent uh, can force their child to believe in Jesus. That's something that only they can choose to do. What Paul is talking about, I think, is that the child, as they're growing up, is faithful to what the Father teaches and what the Father stands for um, and kind of conforms to that and is a good example to others. And then if we look at Bible teaching ability, that they are able to teach from the Bible, that's an obvious one. And then lastly, experience, not to be a new Christian. Paul talks about if, if we're a new Christian, then we should be uh, tried to get in and, 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 and so on. And it's good, isn't it, just to have people 
there's men who are elders who have uh, life experience. So they're the four uh, areas, if you like, the four parts of uh, kind of life, personal character, home life, Bible teaching ability and experience. Now, having just read that list of qualifications, Paul, Keith and myself would formally like to resign uh, as elders, uh, obviously being unfit for office. And seriously though, as we, as, as we look at these four areas, I just want to say three things. Firstly, as you look at them, you may think as you hear those or as you read them and then you think of the three of us, you may think that there's, a- there's areas as elders that we are that we need to get better at or we need to get better in. And, and you'll probably be right. And if that's the case, then can I ask you to pray for us? Please pray for us in those areas. If you identify an area that one of us is, yeah, Andy's not so great at that, or, or obviously it's only me who's not going to be great, Paul, he's obviously not. But if you think, yeah, Andy's not so great at that, he, he's, he sometimes does this or that, then would you pray for me? Because I'm just, a, I'm just a guy struggling like the rest of you, struggling to follow Jesus and to be the kind of man I should be. So rather than maybe criticize us or judge us uh, and and talk about us, would you pray for us? Would you commit yourself to praying for for the three of us when you see things that that, that we're doing? We are just three ordinary dudes, I say, who struggling with all the same kinds of issues and challenges and temptations that everybody else does. And we desperately need the help and the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and especially as we try and lead this church. And if you don't believe me, then just ask our wives and kids, and they will tell you, Anastasia's nodding, uh, they will tell you that we definitely need your prayers and we definitely need your help, okay? Secondly, as we appoint new elders in the future, God willing, please remember what we're saying today. It's important that as church members, if you're a church member, that when we appoint a new elder, that, that you know yourself that that new elder meets these qualifications. It's important that you take responsibility for that, not just the existing elders, important that you recognize future elders to be biblically qualified. And, and thirdly, maybe you sense God is calling you to be an elder. Then, and, and if that's the case, then, then share that with us. But please also look carefully at these biblical qualifications and ask God to help you with those and ask God to help you grow and develop in those maybe that you're uh, needing his help with. You might wonder how we actually function and, and what we do as elders. Uh, well, Keith, Paul, and myself meet at least once a month for a formal meeting where we pray together and we pray about all the different issues and situations and challenges that uh, are going on in church life and in the world around us. We, we have an agenda, we take minutes, and then we kind of work through those each time we meet. We discuss every aspect of church life and we pray through all those and we're looking at every time we're looking at all the different ministries and on a regular basis we meet with the leaders of those ministries and make sure that there's no issues, they've got all the, the, the resources they need and so on. We take time to look at pastoral situations, people who are struggling with different things. We plan for the future, we look at the finances and a whole load more. And these meetings would normally last typically four hours. We do that once a month. Out of those meetings would come a whole load of actions that we need to take. There's Bible study passages for us to go away, and oh, this has come up, so we need to go away and study that. What does the Bible really say about that? There's people to meet with. There's, there's people to talk to, more meetings to hold, uh, things to plan, papers to write, books to read, phone calls to make, emails to send, and so on. And then in, in, in addition to that monthly meeting, we would be communicating, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this, but several times a day, usually on WhatsApp, we have a group WhatsApp, uh, or, or an email of different situations uh, that are, uh, sort of arise each day. And... It's not an exaggeration to say probably two or three times a day we're exchanging messages on WhatsApp as elders. 
we're also planning for the future. I think that's important that everybody knows that, that we're not just going to stay forever. Don't worry, we are going to step down at some point. Uh, some of us are older than others, obviously, but you know, we're, we are planning for the future. We've got an eldership development group. We've got Rob Stewart over here and, and Joel, who I meet with once a month. They have a whole lot of homework and Bible study and stuff to do each month. And then we get together over breakfast. And then uh, after quite a long breakfast, we then do a little bit of Bible study and prayer. Uh, and, and we talk through all the different issues that we're looking at. And then they also attend as observers and monthly elders meetings most of the time as well. And God willing, possibly in the future, they will be uh, joining the eldership uh, in the future. But that will be for the future as to God to guide us in that. And, and that's something that we want to continue doing, not just with these guys, but with further uh, guys in the future. Because succession planning and planning and preparing for the future is so important, isn't it? Being an elder carries with it huge pressure and a huge weight. The elders are responsible before God. And one day we'll all have to stand before God as we all will and give an account for what we've done with our lives. And as elders and as, of course, as those who teach will be judged more severely, we will have to give an account for how we've led and how we've taught this church. And that certainly makes me uh, stop and think quite often, and I'm sure probably you feel the same way. This church doesn't belong to us. It's not our church. It belongs to Jesus. We are under shepherds. We're overseers acting on Jesus' behalf. And with that comes huge responsibility and huge pressure eldership is kind of a bit like an iceberg i think the majority of an iceberg is actually under the water what you see is the bit above the water actually most of the iceberg is actually underneath the water and eldership's a little bit like that there's a huge amount of work and time and effort that goes on behind the scenes as we help people as we work with people as we teach them one-on-one or on small groups and, and most of that goes on unseen and when church members have problems, the elders try and uh, end that sort of meeting with them and, and helping them. And often that means that as elders, we are carrying the burdens of other people. And, and sometimes they are really big burdens to carry and really difficult problems. And as a result, they can sometimes be real genuine sleepless nights for us as elders, just worrying about other people and carrying their weight through and, and the situations that they are facing. And we're just ordinary men believe me, who face all the same challenges, all the same struggles and temptations as everybody else. We desperately need your help, your support, your prayers uh, as we try and lead this church. I want to also flag up two other groups of people this morning that find themselves involved in church eldership, even though they're not elders, and they have no say in what the elders do or decide. And that's the wives and the children of church elders. There's no qualifications listed in the New Testament for an elder's wife. But I would suggest that because when a man and a woman get married, they are one flesh in God's eyes, that actually an elder's wife should meet, I would suggest, most of the same qualifications as the elder themselves. I think that's, uh, I think that's fairly obvious. It, it, it would be difficult, wouldn't it, to see how an elder whose wife was not supportive of his role or, or really didn't love Jesus very much and wasn't committed to Jesus and committed to church life, it would be really difficult for that person, for that man to be an elder. An elder's wife is in one sense the other side of the same coin because they are one. And, and so it's important, isn't it, that, that elders' wives are godly women who love Jesus with a passion as well and, and, and full of the Holy Spirit and are really committed to their husband's work as an elder and to the local church. But an elder's wife is very much the unsung hero because they're not elders. 
and yet they have to support their husbands as their husbands often carry great weights and burdens. And when, they're el- when their husbands make decisions, their wives often have to kind of go with that, uh, even though they may not always agree with them. And they have to support their husbands as their husbands often carry those big burdens and weights. They often have to watch as their husbands have really difficult and complex situations to deal with whilst not being able themselves to get involved uh, or to uh, often to help, really. So can I ask you to pray for the wives of our elders? Please, would you pray to, to Lucy, to Victoria, to Claire? They're not elders, but as elders' wives, they, they kind of have all of the uh, disadvantages with none of the advantages, if you like, if you put it that way. They, they really need your prayers and your support as well. When a man becomes a church elder, the rest of the church often treats the elders differently and often treats their wives differently. And that can be sometimes a really lonely place for an elder's wife. And just as the elders are just ordinary men facing all the same challenges and struggles that everybody else does, so are the elders' wives. But often they find themselves in this unique role and unique situation. So please, would you pray for them? Would you pray for for Lucy, Victoria, for Claire? Because they need your support and they need your prayers. Would you pray for them? And then the children of elders also find themselves in a unique situation that they haven't asked to be in. And they maybe don't want to be in. They get dragged to all the church events. They have to turn up at everything. And they may not want to be there. They don't get a choice in it. They have to make their own sacrifices. As dads are often busy, dads are often off out to another church meeting or doing something for church. And it's often the case that you know members can often put unfair expectations on the children of elders in a way that they don't put on the children of other church families to perhaps behave or, or act in a certain way. And, and that often happens. And then sometimes there's judgmental attitudes towards those children when they perhaps don't behave in the way that their parents would like. And it's often true that they themselves feel under a great deal of pressure to conform to a certain kind of standard or behave in a certain way, which no other children in the church f- feel. And, and that can be really tough, especially when you're a teenager. When you're a teenager, that it can be a really difficult thing with that pressure on you. So please be gentle. Please be gracious with the children of our church. And as we get older, sometimes we become less and less tolerant of those who are younger. Let's be gracious and tolerant to all our children in church, but especially so those who are the children of the elders. They didn't ask to be who they are. They have no choice in it, but they find themselves in that situation. So please pray for the children of our elders, not just the ones who are under 18, but the the ones who are over 18 too. Pray for them. Can I ask you to pray for them and support them and encourage them? Please don't assume that they've got everything sorted and sewn up just because they are the children of the elders. Satan will always attack churches. He always has, he always will until Jesus comes back. And he will attack particularly the elders in all kinds of ways, often unseen and, and in very kind of um, insidious ways behind the, behind the scenes. He will target the elders' wives. He will attack them. He will attack the children of the church elders. He will attack the marriages of the church elders. If he can take out, Satan can take out a church leader he can take out the wife of a church leader, if he can take out the children of a church leader, if he can take out the marriage of a church leader, the damage that is done is massive. So elders, their wives, their children will generally face, I would suggest, more spiritual attacks than anybody else simply because of the role they find themselves in. So please, would you pray for Keith, for 
for myself. Please pray for Lucy and for Victoria for Claire. Pray for our children. And, and would you pray for Rob and, and, and Joel and, and Sarah and Emily as they uh, train for eldership too. And pray for the children that we have and the children that we may have in the future. Would you pray for us in this uh, key role guard this trustworthy message that's being entrusted to the local church. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the means by which Jesus takes the gospel, the good news to the world. And those therefore who are the gatekeepers, the overseers, the shepherds, the, 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 the elders of those churches have such a key role, such a crucial role. And we, I can assure you as elders, the three of us are, are only too aware of our own limitations. And so we would desperately crave your prayers and your support. I'm going to ask four, uh, uh, three people to come up and, and do just that now. Maybe, Paul, you could just uh, kind of raise that up a little bit. That'd be great. Bob Sykes is going to come and pray for the elders firstly. Then I'm going to ask Margaret Ainsley, who's going to come and pray for the elders' wives. And then Rachel Baker is going to come and pray for the children of the elders. And then I'm going to pray once more for those who may, God willing, be elders in the future. So, Bob, if you'd come up and just pray on our behalf for the uh, elders uh, themselves, that would be great. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Andy. Uh, can we uh, just pray now for, uh, for the elders? Almighty God, Father in heaven, we come before you this morning as God's gathered people. We are the members of your church here on earth, and we come before you to pray for our elders, for Keith, for Paul, and for Andy. We thank you for these mighty men of God. That's Keith, Paul, and Andy. We thank you that you have raised up these men to be our elders, and we ask that you will help us to honor, respect, and submit to, uh, submit to them. I pray for, for these mighty men, uh, that they may walk by faith and not by sight, fixing their eyes not on that which is seen, but on that which is unseen. May they lead this church with wisdom and godly understanding. Help them to feed on your word and be ever receptive to the promptings of your spirit. Fill them with your word and fill them with your spirit. I pray that these three may move in unity, each one receptive and prompted by the same spirit of God with one purpose, the moving forward and enlargement of your kingdom here on earth by the teaching and promotion of your true gospel. Bless them in all that they do, watch over them, and send your angels to protect them and help them to continue to guard and guide the people of this church for your glory. We ask all these prayers in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Margaret Ainsley is going to come and pray for the elders' wives. Thanks, Margaret. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Claire, for Victoria, and for Lucy. We thank you for the evidence that we've had over many years of their Christian faith and love for you. The fact that they were called to be wives of the elders. And Father, 
this role is as part of many roles that they have. We just thank you for the family, families um, of these three women. And we just pray that you would be with them as they seek to support um, their husbands in the vision for this church that you have given. Father, we know that this demands sacrifice and we pray that as they seek day by day to support whatever demands are made upon them, that you would just sustain them and strengthen them and just fill them with your love for the role that you have given them. Father, we just ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Children of the elders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the children of our elders. We thank you that it was your plan to put them into their families. And we thank you that they are seeking to follow you in their lives. As they are in a unique position, witnessing both the joys and struggles of church leadership. I pray that they would keep their eyes fixed on you and be given extra grace and compassion for those in this congregation. And I pray that we as a church would pray for these young people, that we would not place un an any unnecessary demands or expectations on them, but we would encourage them in their Christian walk, encourage their own unique giftings, and give them the space and grace that they need to grow. I pray for them at work, at university, in school, that they would stay close to you in a world that would try to draw them away and that they would shine bright and take your kingdom into the places that they go. I pray especially for Daniel and Alistair as they leave home for the first time in the next days and weeks. Please, Lord, go ahead of them, provide them with good friends, and may they grow in their knowledge of, of and love for you. We lift them all before you now, protect them, guide them, and use them to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Band are going to come and lead us in one final song, but as they're coming up, I'm just going to pray uh, for those who will become elders in the future and for their wives and their children. I'm also going to pray for David and Sarah as they move down to Uxbridge. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the church. Thank you that, that this church is your family. It belongs to you. And we pray that as a church, we would honor and glorify you in all that we do. We pray that we would um, be led by those who are godly, uh, righteous men and I pray Lord for elders for the future I pray for uh, for Rob and Joel but I pray for others too not just now but in the years ahead that you would raise up that you would uh, put your hand upon that your spirit would fill and anoint and empower and uh, that that not just now but in many years to come if you or Jesus haven't returned that um, this church would be led by godly men who love you and love your people so bless us, we pray, for the future, not just now, but in the years ahead. And would you bless their wives, and would you bless their children and uh, their families. And we just pray your ongoing protection over uh, us as a church and as a church family together. Father, pray for David and Sarah as they move down to Uxbridge at Waterloo Road Church there in West London. Would you bless them and help David as he leads that church forward and pray for his role there as a minister and pray that you would bless him 
and used him mightily. And for Sarah, as she supports him and has her own ministries, would you bless them both and their children? Uh, thank you for them. Thank you for the partnership we've enjoyed in the gospel uh, here in Gosforth and with Christchurch. So would you bless them? We thank you for them. And go ahead of them, we pray, uh, as they move in these next few weeks. Lord, just thank you for church. Thank you for the church family. Thank you that we're all your people who love and, and know you. We give you thanks. And we thank you most of all that we are who we are because you've saved us, you've uh, chosen us, you've died for us, Lord Jesus. You've given your life for us. You've brought us together. People who perhaps would never have met ordinarily, but you've brought us together in the Holy Spirit, brought us together in faith in Jesus. So we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.